This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sometimes some cops bring their own racism to the job. Nobody disputes that. Racism can appear in any line of work, so why be surprised when some cops also are exposed as racially biased? But that is a different thing from saying that policing in general, policing as broadly practiced in the U.S., is broadly guilty of racism on a daily and routine basis. That charge has been made, it has been made often, that it's not just about a few bad apples, but that race determines not only who gets to talk his or her way out of a parking ticket, but much more importantly, who gets stopped, who gets searched, and most critically, who gets shot by the cops in an incident, as in those disturbing videos that keep on surfacing. Sorting out the truth of this has not been an easy discussion, but it's one that should not be avoided. So we are going to have it, we hope, in the form of the kind of intelligent and, again, we hope, civil debate that is the goal of Intelligence Squared U.S. So let's do it. Yes or no to this statement, policing is racially biased. I'm John Donvan. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City will vote to choose the winner And as always, only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. Our motion is this, policing is racially biased. We have two debaters arguing for the motion. Please, let's welcome Gloria Brown Marshall. Hi, Gloria. And uh, Gloria, you you qualify better than anyone on this stage for the compliment of renaissance person. Uh, You teach law, John Jay. You're a journalist. You write scholarly books. You are a produced playwright. I think you've written seven or eight plays. Um, You used to argue in court. You're still a civil rights attorney. You used to argue for the Southern Poverty Law Center and the NAACP. Of all the hats that you've worn, what's your favorite? I like to say that there are branches on the same tree of justice. So I don't choose one. They're all branches on the same tree. All right. Thank you, Gloria. And tell us, please, who your partner is. My partner is Mark Terramup Claxton. (laughs) Mark Claxton. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thank you. And, Mark, you were a cop. You were 20 years with the New York Police Department. You were in uniform. You also did plainclothes patrol. You did undercover narcotics investigation. And now you run political affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. Um, So tell us, does being a cop change a person? Yeah, I think it's unavoidable when you're exposed to so much negativity throughout the course of a career. It's unavoidable. You're going to have some scar tissue. But... I like to think uh, that as a result of my experience in the police force that I have the, you know, uh, increased sense of compassion and understanding and sensitivity to some of the issues that people face. Okay, and it will bring some insight to tonight's debate. Please welcome again the team arguing for the motion. And we have one team trying to persuade you to vote the other way. Policing is racially biased. They say vote no. First, let's welcome Heather McDonald. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Heather, uh, you're a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal. You've written a lot of books, including one called The War on Cops. Um, You started out interested in law. You graduated from Stanford Law. You clerked for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, But now you have moved on from law. You're non-practicing. But you you focus on this issue a lot of policing and criminal justice reform. So where did your interest in this policing topic come from? Well, I lived through the transformation of New York from a symbol of urban dysfunction to a hipster mecca, it was impossible not to become interested in policing since it drove that change. Okay, and tell us please who your partner is. The courtroom whiz kid, Harry Stern. Hi, Harry. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. (laughs) Harry, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Uh, You're with the firm of Reigns, Lucia, and Stern. Or is that Lucia and Stern? Lucia, it's Italian. Lucia. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, you you're, you uh, re- represent police officers uh, in the sure. state of California, but you, like your opponent, uh, Mark, you were a cop at one time. Though you weren't in it for as long as Mark, did you find that being a cop changed you? I did. You know, being a cop in Berkeley was a wild ride. I met Nobel laureates, uh, gang hitmen, and Joan Baez once stopped me during the middle of a riot to ask me what was going on. But the thing I found was uh, 
the takeaway is people are really basically the same, and they have an essential goodness. And I think as a cop, Mark and I probably learned that same lesson. All right. Optimistic note to start the evening. Let's move on to round one. Round one, the motion is this. Policing is racially biased. And up to speak first for the motion, Mark Claxton, Director of Public Relations and Political Affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and a retired New York police detective. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Claxton. I'd like to start off by reading Merriam-Webster's definition of bias. Included in that definition is a bent tendency, an inclination or temperament or outlook, especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. That's bias. I also refer to Black's Law Dictionary, a predisposition to decide a cause or an issue in a certain way. Most importantly, I want this last line in Black's definition is, this term is not synonymous with prejudice. I suspect that through the course of this evening, what you're going to hear is a boatload of statistics And I think we just have to be honest about certain things. When you're talking about police bias, let's just be honest about it. Because these numbers, this data that I suspect that you'll be hearing this evening, actual bias is not easily quantified. It's hard to really put numbers to specific and detailed bias. Without a historical context, without legal context, it becomes confusing. And if you deny bias, then you reject not only your common sense, but the experiences of many people like myself. The story that I have, the experience that I have 20 years in the police department, observing what I observed, or perhaps my personal experiences, being just shortly before going into the police academy, being stopped on Springfield Boulevard uh, into a, a, a checkpoint, along with five other vehicles and five other black men, and we were all tossed out of our cars onto the street. It was later explained to me that I was stopped because they were looking for a black man in a dark car. That was one week before the academy. Or maybe perhaps the experience that my own son had 23 years later, less than a mile from the same location that it occurred with me. Or maybe, less less innocuous is this. If you remember, let's just give you an example of bias. In 2003, there was in the Prospect Park, the Philharmonic was playing. 2003, let me remind you, was a time when there was a severe and heavy crackdown. Zero tolerance in the communities of color across the city. No tolerance for drinking in public. No tolerance for loitering. No tolerance for this. Absolutely zero tolerance. Yet still, Mayor Bloomberg sat in Prospect Park drinking his wine, laid out on a blanket, being offered all types of alcohol. He said, well, these people are different. There's not a problem with this. So the police enforcement isn't necessary. I went the next week to Bryant Park with my little blanket and my wine and my cheese, and I drank very well. (laughs) Bias, no enforcement. Finally, I want to say the other victims of bias policing are those hardworking, diligent, dedicated law enforcement professionals who, because of bias policing, are put in positions and given quotas and false productivity standards, which place them in harm's way because they have increased contact and increased liability. It is not the everyday police officer who sets the tone and determines the level of bias in policing right now. It is the system. Vote yes for the truth. Vote yes on the motion. Thank you, Mark Laxman. And that motion again. Policing is racially biased. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, here is Harry Stern. He is managing principal for the law firm Reigns, Lucia Stern, and a former Berkeley police officer. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Stern. I want to start off by saying that this is an incredibly awkward experience talking about race like this. I kind of wish we had been given a, a bland and uncontroversial topic like religion or presidential politics. (laughs) On the other hand, I thought I'd share with you a vignette from my time as a police officer. I was sent to a park to deal with a drunk, and when I was speaking to him, I could tell he was reading my name tag. He was staggering a little bit. His lips were moving, and he finally looked over to me and said, Stern, 
are you Jewish or white? <laughs> and I was taken aback. I didn't have an answer for him that was very good, so I arrested him. <laughs> just, just kidding, professor. <laughs> but this highlights one of the truths about race and police work, and that's that it's complicated. It's fraught with confusion and misconceptions. But let me tell you something. In one way, our argument can be summarized uh, as follows by an uncomfortable but inescapable truth, and here it is. Black people commit more crime per capita than other groups. And the real problem with that statement is not only that it makes me personally uncomfortable and it's hard to say, but that people hear it as... He's saying black people are bad or that black people are criminals. And the natural response to that is a reflexive reaction which puts it back on the police. It turns it around in a sense and says that can't be the case. In fact, it has to be the police that are racists, the police that are bad, and we need to find a solution to that. What I can tell you, which is indisputable, is that this discussion is driven in large part by the high-profile incidents that we've seen that are infamous and are often captured on video. But that's an incredibly poor vehicle for forming public policy because these are the extreme cases. In my remaining time, I'm going to suggest to you inferentially uh, there's proof that the proposition that Policing is racist in America can be uh, shown by the wrong-headed and misguided consequences that are a result of that kind of thinking. First and foremost is the inevitable increase in crime. Because when policymakers are almost uh, myopically focused on stop data, saying that it's disproportional and that it's not correlated to incidents of crime, the message to the police is stop doing police work. The nature, maybe the essence of police work is suspicion. It's the, uh, the state trooper who pulled over Timothy McVeigh uh, for a license uh, tab violation. It's the Italian police who stopped the Berlin uh, Christmas terrorist uh, for an ID check and wound up um, figuring out who he was. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, Policing is Racially Biased. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third, debating for the motion and making her way now to the lectern, Gloria Brown Marshall. She is an associate professor of constitutional law at John Jay College, a civil rights attorney and author of Race, Law, and American Society. Gloria Brown Marshall. Policing is racially biased. We're not saying that every police officer operates with racial animus. We're saying generally policing is racially biased. And in 2013, the federal court said policing in New York City is racially biased. As well as the Justice Department of the United States said there were small as well as large police departments across the country in a finding that policing is racially biased. The United Nations said in 2013 in its report by the Human Rights Commission, policing is racially biased. By that point alone, we have won. <laughs> However, we also need to know this, that the police department, made up of people who joined the police to help others, 
are part of an extension of an American society that has race as that original sin. I'm going to go through 400 years of history in a minute and a half. 1607, Jamestown Colony is founded in Virginia. 1619, 20 Africans arrive in that colony. In the 1600s, you had hard-working people of African descent following the law, but then the laws changed, didn't they, and subjected them to chattel slavery. In our society, it's not the bobbies of London that start the police force. It is the slave patrols from which our police force then is founded. 1865, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, but read your constitution. Slavery is abolished except as punishment for a crime. So what happens between 1865 and World War II? The convict lease system. Criminal laws are put in place to criminalize black behavior so that they can then be used as laborers. Remember the movie The Shawshank Redemption? Then we have Jim Crow segregation. Who then enforces segregation? The criminal justice system, police officers. Over 4,000 people were lynched in this country, burned alive, castrated, throats cut, tortured. Was anybody arrested? No. Where were the police officers for African Americans? Then we get the Civil Rights Movement. But then in 1968, the U.S. Supreme Court rules in Terry versus Ohio that the police have unprecedented authority to stop and frisk based on reasonable suspicion of imminent danger. But now as we go through time, we find the imminent danger part is dropped away. 600,000 people stopped by police, the majority of whom are black and brown. History, practice, law. You will hear that the police officers have no choice but to go into certain communities based on data. But can it be both? Data as well as racial bias? He said that black people commit more crimes. What kind of crimes? When they talk about African Americans, they want to talk about violent crimes. And then they want to vilify those people who protest against our public servants. This country was born in protest. The Declaration of Independence was protest. Will someone Christian decide when the anti-Semitism is over? Will a man decide when there's no more sexism? I don't think so. There is racial bias in policing. Vote yes for the motion. Thank you, Gloria Brown Marshall. And that motion again, policing is racially biased, and here to make her opening statement against the motion, Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of the City Journal and author of The War on Cops, Heather McDonald. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me state some core principles. The police have an absolute obligation to treat everyone they encounter with courtesy and respect. Second, Every police shooting of an innocent civilian is a stomach-churning tragedy. Tactical training has to work incessantly to prevent such calamities. Third, given this country's appalling history of racism, police shootings of black men are particularly and understandably fraught. But however tragic the history of policing and race, patterns of policing today do not demonstrate police bias. In order to save lives... Cops go where people are most being victimized, and that is in minority neighborhoods. In 2015, cops killed 991 people, the vast majority armed and dangerous. 50% of the victims of police shootings were white, though you would never know it from the press coverage. Now, 26% of the victims of fatal police shootings in 2015 were black. Does that indicate police racism? After all, blacks are only 13% of the nation's population. It does not. Police shootings are going to occur where the police most frequently encounter violent and resisting suspects, and that is in also minority neighborhoods. Police activity, whether stops, arrests, or shootings, should be measured against crime, not population ratios. According to the Justice Department, Blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. That's because blacks commit homicide at eight times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined, according to the Justice Department. Add Hispanic shootings to black shootings, and you account for 98% 
of all shootings in New York City. This means that virtually every time the cops are called out to a shooting scene, they're being called to a minority neighborhood on behalf of minority victims and being given the description of a minority suspect. The cops don't wish that disparity. It's a reality forced upon them by the reality of crime. The other factor that drives police activity is community requests for assistance. Go to any police community meeting in a high crime area and you'll hear some version of the following requests. You arrest the drug dealers and they're back on the corner the next day. There's teens hanging out in the street fighting. Whatever happened to truancy and loitering laws? The irony is this. If the police respond to these heartfelt requests for public order, they'll generate the racially disproportionate enforcement activity that can be used against them, however falsely, in a racial profiling lawsuit. But if they don't respond, they'll be ignoring the thousands of hardworking, law-abiding inner-city residents who beg the police for public order. Thanks to data-driven, proactive policing, thousands of minority lives were saved over the last two decades that would have been lost had crime rates remained at their early 1990s levels. The police must work incessantly to improve their communications and tactical skills. But as long as crime and victimization remain so unevenly distributed throughout the population, police-civilian contacts will be too. That is not racism. It is reality. Thank you. Thank you, Heather McDonald. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is policing is racially biased. And now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters take questions from me and from you and our live audience, and they speak directly to one another. They can, from time to time, interrupt each other or question each other as well. Our motion is this. Policing is racially biased. We've heard the team arguing for the motion. Gloria Brown Marshall and Mark Claxton argue that to reject the argument that bias is happening in policing is intellectually dishonest. They're not saying that every cop is a racist, but that the system is. They tell this story as rooted in a heritage of black behavior being criminalized throughout the history of the United States. The team arguing against the motion, Heather McDonald and Harry Stern, indeed do come up with the argument that data matters a lot. They say that policing is not racially biased, but that it may seem so due to confusion and misconception based on stories and anecdotes that can be powerful but not absolutely comprehensive. They say the reality is that black people commit more crime per capita than other groups, that that's where the crime is, that's where the police go, that's where the incidents happen. But I want to start by asking the team arguing against the motion. Racial profiling has been established and documented by the Department of Justice, the report done on Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, they talk about the UN, etc. What about those cases as evidence? How do you place those? Heather McDonald first. Well, I don't necessarily view the UN as an expert on, on uh, American policing. And I think that some of those reports used a specious methodology for determining racial profiling. They inevitably use a population benchmark to evaluate policing. And it is not the police who are determining where to put their resources. It is where people are being victimized. You can go to a CompStat meeting in New York City. These are these high-intensity accountability sessions that the New York Police Department subjects itself to. They don't talk about race. They talk about who is being robbed and what is our strategy for trying to respond to that. Okay. Let's let Gloria Brown Marshall respond. I'm quite sure the police department is not going to go into a meeting and talk about race. They're not saying we're going to go after the black people. However, in the Floyd case, I was in the federal courtroom. Can you remind people very briefly the Floyd case for those who are The Floyd case is a case that was brought by an individual African-American male who was um, going into his home, and he was arrested by police, racially profiled by police, and he brought a suit. I want you to think about what a stop and frisk is. Think about the government touching you, rubbing your legs, your arms, your head, your back, your, your chest, and then making you lie down on the ground with your face in the, on the sidewalk or in the dirt. I have friends who are police officers, but there has been abuse. And the Floyd case that was decided in federal court indicated that there was not just based on disproportionality, but based on the facts of the case and the evidence given and a recording of police officers telling other police officers to go to certain communities and, I quote, make them understand that community does not belong to them, it belongs to us. Okay, let me bring it to Harry Stern and, again... 
your, your opponents arguing with anecdotes, which you said at the beginning, not good enough. Well, it's not that it's not good enough. It's not that it's not their experience, and it's not that in some ways— Is it that uh, it's not real, or are you saying— It's not compelling. Here's the, the fundamental issue. Racial profiling is crappy police work, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, I worked, I had the privilege of working in predominantly black neighborhoods, and if I was going to stop every black person that I encountered, I wouldn't get anything accomplished. So the idea that uh, racially profiling, stopping people just because of their race, constitutes good police work is hogwash, but and that's I, not I, co- what cops but, but are no, doing. But who's arguing that? Who's arguing that it's good policing? My, my He's argument. arguing with himself. <laughs> no. All right, let me, let me let Mark jump in on that. No. I agree with you. Uh, you know, racial profiling and policing is, is crappy police work. And that's why it's important for us to understand that in addition to, you know, citizen victims, it's the police officer who now has increased liability, more negative contact with people. We've lost the faith and confidence of so many people. Why? Because quotas and, and, and the quest for data forces police officers to engage in contact that they normally would not engage in. Heather McDonald. I'm sure that there were very bad stops being made during the high watermark of stop, question, and frisk in New York City. Nevertheless, 53% of all stops in New York City had a black subject. 9% had a white subject. I would like to ask my, the opposing team what they think the proper ratio should be. Given that blacks commit 75% of all shootings and 70% of all robberies. Again, according to victims and witnesses, this isn't the biased police talking. I'm going to say something that goes back to what Harry mentioned. You're back on my team? No. (laughs) You said blacks commit more crimes. How are you defining crime? You've only focused on violent crimes, and that's a very small percentage of all crimes. So in order for you to be a part of this database, that means that a police officer has to not only encounter you, but decide to arrest you. And what happens is whites commit more crimes, but they are not arrested in a proportion in which they should be arrested because policing is very subjective. You're going to decide, do I'm going, am I going to ruin the future of this teenager who's caught, you know, destroying public property or smoking marijuana in the car? And those of you in this room know how many times you should have been arrested as a teen. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh- Harry Stern, Harry Stern ticket. I'm going to throw back both of you, frankly, really a common sense point is I'm going to go out on a limb and estimate that 100% of homicides are reported. Okay, there isn't any disparity between the suburbs and the cities or uh, farm communities about when people are getting murdered, they get reported. I'm going to go out on a limb and estimate that the vast majority of armed robberies and shootings and rapes are reported. Uh, On the fringes are things that we can all have. Okay, you didn't like that point. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think you lost them on all the rapes being reported. Don't don't take it out against Heather. But look, the vast majority of violent crimes are being reported regardless of the community. So this data is objective. Those are the facts. All right, Mark Claxton. I assure you that if we decided to make this area within 10 block, a 10 block radius of this area, a special zone, and we decided to do zero tolerance enforcement, and we decided to, to increase, as a law enforcement agency, increase our activity, this would be the most criminal area in New York within a short period of time. You will find crime where you look for it. Why are they enforcing loitering laws in certain communities? Because that's what the public is asking them to do. If the public in in this community said there's too many people hanging out on the corners fighting, why don't you do something about it? The cops would enforce the laws here. So it sounds like we're having a chicken and an egg argument here, actually. We have a shot spotter technology. We have a shot spotter technology. This is something that transcends people reporting crime in New York. It's a a machine that listens to shootings. And it pinpoints where the shot came from. The shots are happening 
in high crime areas. The police are trying to save lives. They believe that black lives matter. But have, have, this is not based on point, police reporting have, or, or false. Here's a classic example of what I just said. You only get shot. What's the, what's the name of this silly shot system? Shotspotter. Shotspotter information from locations you put the shotspotter equipment in. And, so and you think all people are being shot? All of them are in black communities. All of them. Am I right, Heather? So, so who's, Wait, let me, let me, show Heather, me the let shooting me, victims. Let's, oh, let's look at your partner. Oh, Harry Stern. Harry Stern. You can't explain away the statistics, the core statistics about the violent crimes. Okay? Homicide reporting is 100%. Armed robbery is right up there. In order to combat the violence that no reasonable person is going to argue is a good thing, nobody's out there saying, we'd like more homicides in our neighborhood. We want uh, more holdups. In order to combat those things, you go after quality of life crimes. And that's a perfectly rational police response to an outcry from a community. And frankly, it works. I want to take one more question from the previous discussion to Gloria Brown Marshall which is your, your opponent's assertion murders are committed in, in hugely disproportionate numbers by African-Americans compared to their place in the population, which is a great big, you know, angry statistic hanging out there that you haven't responded to. Well, I would say there are black victims who want police to come and they want justice. So we, we concede that point when it comes to the fact that there is harm within the black communities Unfortunately, what about the little old lady who lives down the street whose grandson is stopped five times because he fits the description of young and black in Brownsville? And um, Heather refers to this as the crime tax. Well, that's the tax you pay for living in a high-crime neighborhood, that you don't have the same rights, you don't get the same protections. When we look at the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side and the types of crimes that take place in this neighborhood that are not reported, since police are not focused on those areas, you're not going to have the same people subjected to the same type of harassment that takes place in these other communities. I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Policing is Racially Biased. Okay, let's go to some audience questions. Ma'am, right down here. Um, I think my question is for the against the motion. You know, many years ago we had the, weed, the weeds and crack. Now recently in the news we've heard of the heroin. Do you see the bias there how now that heroin is being taken care of because it affects a certain part of the community and not necessarily happening in the community of color? So nobody cares uh, if some chubby guy with long hair is smoking weed and watching cartoons and eating Twinkies in his apartment. That's not a public safety issue. His parents aren't happy, but uh, he's not causing violence in the community. When I worked in narcotics, uh, primarily focused on crack because that's what we were dealing with, it wasn't the, the idea that people were smoking crack and ruining their lives. It was the violence that was attendant, and we were responding directly to the outcry from the community. Get the dope dealers off the streets, stop the drive-by shootings, make our neighborhood safe again. And that fits into the issue of the system in that you have different policies for different people. So when it's crack cocaine, you have a policy of arrest. When it's powder cocaine, you have a policy of counseling. And at this point, we're, we're dealing with a heroin epidemic. Here's where the violence comes in. You have to feed that $100, $200, $300 a day habit. So you have breaking and entering. You have burglaries. And that's why I said when we talk about crime, why is it that you only look at certain crimes? You're not looking at the fact that crystal meth is an epidemic in rural communities, mostly white people, but you don't hear that much about it. Heather McDonald. Well, the New York Times actually did a study this summer and found that if you're arrested as a dealer in a rural county, a white rural county, in the U.S., you have a 50% greater chance of getting sentenced to prison than you're in a big urban jurisdiction. We've all heard about the infamous 100 to 1 disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, and a, a certain amount 
of crack would yield you a five to ten year mandatory sentence. Exact same penalty structure for meth. That's what we never hear about. Meth federal uh, trafficking defendants are about 57, 58 percent white and 2 percent black. So if the crack penalties were anti-black, then the, the meth penalties are anti-white. Uh, and they're absol- they were absolutely identical. Now the meth penalties are much higher than they are for dealing with crack. I think you're making the gentleman that up. In, the, in the center there with the... Your colorful sweater. In a perfect world, what data would prove that uh, racial bias is going away or is gone? Uh, In other words, what would falsify your argument? Because it seems that the extent to which an argument is unfalsifiable, it's weak. I think that's a very good question. There was an, an article last year that there's been a slight increase in the number of whites arrested. The United States has 5% of the world's population and over 20% of those incarcerated. The whole incarceration rate needs to come down. But at the same time, we need to look at are people who are committing the crimes actually getting arrested? Whites use drugs more than blacks, yet the arrest rate for blacks is higher. When you start talking about people getting arrested for doing the same thing other people are doing, if that starts going down, then I think that we're looking at a less, less racial bias in criminal justice and police. Really excellent question. Thank you for that. Sir, against the column there, yeah. Uh, yes, um, just a citizen asking a question. Uh, getting back to, to the evidence, there's a preponderance of evidence that in tactical training, for example, police respond to, for example, a black face popping up as more of a threat than a white face popping up. Given, you know, your argument has been based on the fact that blacks commit more crimes per capita than whites, fine. If, if we accept that, then isn't, isn't it also a, a fact that a citizen of a country should be judged equally? Well, you're referring to this whole concept of implicit bias. And in fact, studies show that there's simulator studies where you have people having to make split-second decisions about shoot, don't shoot. And it's true. Civilians who are not trained as police officers, do respond more quickly to black faces. Police officers do not. Four studies have come out this year alone that show that if there's a bias in police shootings, it actually works in favor of blacks. That's Lois James at Washington State University, who put cops in simulator situations. They took longer to decide to shoot an armed black suspect than an armed white suspect and were less likely uh, to shoot unarmed blacks and unarmed whites. Let me, uh, but there is there, the evidence, as, as strange as it is, because it is so contrary to everything that we've been taught about policing, shows just the opposite. Mark, that, Mark Claxton, to respond to that. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah just briefly. Uh, just think to yourself, how many times have you been walking down the street and there's a young black man that walks up uh, walking behind you and you feel less safe or you cross the street? How many times do you decide to be at the ATM and the young black guy comes in there, or an old black guy for that matter, and you just feel a little funny? How many times did that happen to you? So less than, because these studies that you've mentioned, I've never heard of. I find them to be counterintuitive. I'm not doubting you now, Heather, because I respect you. But for me, it's just difficult to understand that type of data. And right down in the front here, in the corner... Uh, my name is Nayaba Owende um, from the Amsterdam News. Question for the four panel. Can you talk about the correlation between bias policing and the prison industrial complex? Is a correlation? Bias policing contributes uh, uh, to the prison industrial complex. You see, if you prime people and you prepare them, you, they go through stages. If you can get them accustomed to being, you know, in, increased police contact, et cetera, then they become primed for criminal criminality later on, or at least they're in somebody's database. I'm just, again, we keep hearing about that we're arresting the wrong people or that there's somehow uh, police are ignoring crime that's happening elsewhere. So we're going to, apparently you're questioning homicide statistics. What about homicide victims? Again, according to the Justice Department, Bureau of Justice Statistics, Blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. That, to me, is the civil rights issue that we should be most concerned about. There's black kids that are being killed to no apparent concern from the media, but let 
20 white kids be gunned down, and this becomes a national crisis. So are, are you saying that there's somehow uh, white victims that the police are ignoring uh, that is also part of the faulty statistics? What we have on the table today, policing is racially biased. It doesn't mean that there are not black victims. There are. I know them. But what it does mean is that we have a system that's in place historically that has looked at black people based on a criminality that does not exist to the extent that which the other side is presenting it. And it's allowing police officers to extend their power well beyond what is needed. We want to have police protection. But if you come to help us and end up hurting us, then we fear the police. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, policing is racially biased. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be brief closing statements by each debater in turn, here making his closing statement in support of the motion that policing is racially biased. Mark Claxton, he is Director of Public Relations and Political Affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and is a retired New York Police Department detective. Thank you. And, and thank you for, uh, for the opportunity to participate in this uh, debate. Once again, I have to remind people that we're not debating it's policing racist, it's policing, anything other than be racially biased. And I think we have to be honest about certain things. And we have to acknowledge and accept our own biases in whatever form they are. Each and every one of us has, in this, in this audience right now, has a bias some sort of bias. So it would be really just counterintuitive to assume that there is no bias in this large legal structure called policing. I warn you not to use data as the the rationale for accepting that police is not uh, racially biased. I believe that we should use statistics and data, and Mark Twain, I believe, said this. We should use statistics and data as a drunk uses the light pole for support and not illumination. (laughs) If you are looking for the answers based on statistics and all of these conflicting data sheets and and price, you're going to be really lost in the source. It's important for us. It is us. We input the data into those machines. Heather spoke about CompStat being a, 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 a vitally important a legal tool, crime-fighting tool. Well, guess who inputs the data into the CompStat machines? Individuals who carry with them a certain bias along with the systemic bias of the structure of policing. Policing Mark Claxton, is biased. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Your time is up. Thank you. The motion, policing is racially biased, and here to make his closing statement against the motion, Harry Stern, he's managing principal for the law firm, Reigns Lucia Stern, and a former Berkeley police officer. Yes, I am. So quickly... Uh, I am not going to fall into the rhetorical trap of trying to argue for slave patrols or anything else that's going to get a boo or a hiss. But here's why statistics are important. And at the end of the day, we have to fall back at them, to them. They're not susceptible to emotional interpretations. And that's how we have to make policy decisions. I represent cops for a living. I was a cop. I love cops. I love black cops. I love women cops. I love Mark, too. The, uh, I had an African-American cop in my office the other week. And uh, I work in downtown San Francisco in the financial district. He told me that he was interested in getting into finance. And he was walking around and how uncomfortable it was for him because everybody was looking at him funny and uh, that as a black guy, a big black guy, he has to be extra nice to people. I almost cried when I heard that. It's horrible. But then as we discussed it further, he said, hey, I'm a cop in Oakland, and I know why. And the why is that black people commit a disproportionate number of violent crime, and that's as reported on the fly by victims. If we're not actually focused on what the reasons are for the causes of crime, 
we're missing the boat and we're missing a golden opportunity to actually fix things. There's no question that disparity, including racism, causes these problems. But until we're actually able to have a face-to-face real conversation about what's really going on with crime, it's going to continue. We're going to keep talking about Harry Stern, I'm going to cut you off. Your time is up. Thank you very much. The motion is policing is racially biased. And here making her statement in support of the motion, her closing statement, Gloria Brown Marshall, Associate Professor of Constitutional Law at John Jay College and Civil Rights Attorney. The other side has pointed to certain very specific areas in which there is a spike in black crime. But overall, whites in America commit more crimes because there are more white people in this country. So if you still don't believe it, I want to tell you this, and this is from a quote from John Ehrlichman, who was an advisor to Richard Nixon in 1968. He said, and I quote, you understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, end quote. So don't be so alarmed. Not only has history, law, and practice shown that race is a part of our policing and that policing is racially biased, the media has fed to us since 1968 at the end of the Civil Rights Movement the vilification of blacks, to make it appear as though we were the only criminals out there. So then when people say blacks commit more crimes, so many folks want to believe it. And police policy is then driven by that. Funding is then given for it. And then we end up in 2017, as was pointed out, trying to figure out how we de-escalate this situation. Policing is racially biased. We can all, based on being here today, do our part about it. Thank you. Thank you. Gloria Brown Marshall. The motion again, policing is racially biased, and here making her closing statement against the motion, Heather McDonald, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of The War on Cops. Last year, over 4,300 people were shot in Chicago. That's one person every two hours. The victims included a three-year-old boy shot on Father's Day who's now paralyzed for life, an eight-year-old girl playing outside of her grandmother's house who was shot in the lung and back, and a 71-year-old man who was watering his lawn and refused to hand over his wallet to a teen robber. Almost all the Chicago victims were black. If you believe the Black Lives Matter narrative, you'd assume that a significant portion of those victims had been shot by cops. In fact, The Chicago police shot 25 people last year, virtually all armed or dangerous. That's 0.6% of the total. Virtually everything the public thinks it knows about policing from the Black Lives Matter movement is false. A police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is is likely to be killed by a police officer. But the policing is racist narrative is not just false, it's dangerous. Violent crime has been rising over the last two years as cops back off of proactive policing under the relentless charge that it is racist. Over 900 additional black males were murdered in 2015 compared to 2014. The toll in 2016 was likely higher still. Attacks on officers are also rising. Gun murders of police officers rose 50% last year. Proactive policing is not racially biased. It is a civil rights imperative. Vote no on the resolution. Thank you. Thank you, Heather McDonald. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is policing is racially biased. You voted twice, once before and one after. Victory goes to the team whose numbers have moved the most upward from the first to the second vote in percentage points. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote, 57% of you agreed with the motion that policing is racially biased. 16% were against and 27% were undecided. 
Those are the first results. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, policing is racially biased, their first vote was 57%. Their second vote, they went up to 60%. They picked up three percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 16%. Their second vote was 28%. That means they went up 12%. That means the team arguing against the motion, policing is racially biased, has won this debate by our rules. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Emily and Antoine Van Actmel, and Edward Stern and Stephanie Ryan. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thanks to all of you. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.